Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 through 24. And I want to I speak about a victorious journey through tragedy and loss. Victorious journey through tragedy and loss. And this is part of that meditation, that extended meditation that I've been involved in over these past uh, three months, I guess, or four, regarding resiliency, regarding how to overcome in life. And, and you know, this is so much greater than just mere resiliency, the, as that uh, word suggests, uh, the capacity to overcome. I think it's just about living a victorious life in general, which is really what Christianity is all about, how to navigate life joyfully, victoriously, successfully in the midst of all kinds of uh, difficulties and challenges that we face in this world that we are living in full of sin and fallenness and so on and so forth. How can we live victorious lives through the power of the gospel? All right, so we enter in, in this part of the text in verse 11, 2 Samuel 12, in a very dark moment, dark moment in the life of King David, who, as you know, lived some very, very difficult times, as well as being a glorious king and having so many wonderful things in his biography. But David was a man who really experienced huge amounts of loss, persecution, injustice, um, accusations, fallenness himself, um, you name it. I mean, David experienced it. And he has been a good companion for many of us who have gone through similar situations. The book of Psalms is full of his reflections and his thoughts as he went through his agonies in a very vulnerable very transparent sort of way. So he, he makes for a very good companion in the journey of life. Um, and, and here we have a dark moment in his life where, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about it. Let me just read the, the words better. The 12, uh, beginning of verse 11. Um, David has sinned gravely, and I'll talk a little bit about that. And so God sends the prophet uh, Nathan to speak to him, to confront him about his sin. And... Uh, Nathan delivers, him, delivers to him these following words. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad dead daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight daylight before all Israel. Now imagine that verdict in the life of David. What God says awaits him. It's a moment of stark denunciation on the part of God. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Remember what, I, what we said earlier that, um, you know, one of the things that we need to do in our lives is confess and acknowledge David was uh, capable of doing that in a very powerful way. He never ran away from his faults and his flaws. And so here we have him acknowledging his sin and bowing before the truth. And it's something that we need to learn sometimes when we go through moments that we ourselves perhaps have brought upon ourselves. When we have sinned, when we have fallen, when we have betrayed the Lord, it is good to acknowledge. Because nothing lowers the defenses of God, so to speak, more quickly than a contrite heart. The Bible says that God will not uh, reject a contrite and humble heart. So the best posture before God is humility rather than disguise or rejection or renaming our sin. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. Now, this is really where David, um, and this is why I think he says in Psalm 51, against you and against you only have I sinned. He had sinned against a lot of other people, but ultimately, you know, the, the sin that he had committed, he committed it directly against God. And so he, he acknowledges that. You have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Another major consequence of his sinfulness. Now, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, had born to David. And he became ill. This is what David does now. He says, David pleaded with God for the child. 
He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him and, and to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, well, the child was still living. He wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. I guess they didn't know David well. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David does something really sort of unexpected and kind of counterintuitive, weird. It says, then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Wow. What a powerful sign of submission before the will of God. And it's something that, you know, we can do many times when we are really feeling the brunt of God's um, weight upon our lives. How difficult it is to worship God. You know, generally we just kind of become secret. At the very best, we become secretly um, resentful. And we kind of stop going to church just to let God feel it a little bit, you know. We stop giving. We stop serving. We stop worshiping. We stop praying. Um, you know, because we just feel, you know, he's, he's betrayed me. He, he hasn't been up to what I expected of him. But no, David goes into the house of the Lord and worships. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants were baffled. They asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, this is, by the way, a little, a little bonus here. This is one of the most, I think, poignant times in, in the Old Testament where you get uh, this intimation that um, heaven exists, that there's life after death, that there is another life waiting for us, and that that life is full of a texture and of different kinds of uh, relationships and so on and so forth. You see, so says, David says, well, you know, I, I'm, I can't bring him back, but I know that I will see him. In the afterlife. So that gives me some consolation. Um, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, the mother of this child that had just died, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And because the Lord loved him, Solomon, that is, had a God had a special affection for Solomon. He sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedediah which means in Hebrew, loved by the Lord. Wow. I mean, you know, why did I choose that passage? Because I feel that there are few passages in Scripture that lend themselves as well to this idea of uh, resiliency and uh, recovery after moments of great loss, tragedy, and suffering. Because in a very compact way, in one image alone, you see, you know, this capacity of a man to recover from unimaginable loss and tragedy to getting back up and continuing with uh, life. And in a very symbolic way, as David uh, gets up and bathes and goes home and worships the Lord and puts some perfume on and eats, you know, he is embracing life again, in a sense. Instead of just lying there and maybe committing suicide, which is what his uh, servants expected him to do, he says, no, I have to to go on living. The Lord gave his uh, decision. He rendered his verdict. Now it's time to join life again. And so th this is the very essence. When we speak of resilience in life, I mean, I can't think of a better, graph more graphic image than that. The capacity to get up after great failure and loss and to just uh, join the, life, uh, the, the land of the living again and to recover so to speak, or, or, or began the journey, perhaps, better put, toward recovery. How, how can we develop that kind of resiliency in the face of tragedy? 
For example, the loss of a loved one or major financial uh, loss or a radical loss of health. We get a, a diagnosis that tells us, hey, you got to be whatever, taking pills for the rest of your life or you got to be getting dialysis the rest of your life or you who are healthy and athletic now have to, you know, do whatever that will limit your uh, capacities. How, how, how do we... Um, deal with the loss of a loved one, spouse, or child, or of a long-held dream that we had about the future. And all of a sudden, all of this comes crashing down. How, how do we recover? I think that's one of the greatest um, challenges and also one of the greatest skills that any human being can learn. How, how do we deal with these terrible situations where we feel disappointed with God, that somehow he hasn't lived up to his promises of protection and blessing? We Pentecostals in particular are prone to, you know, all kinds of great um, declarations of victory and power and uh, healing and supernatural events. And those all are true. But, you know, sometimes we find ourselves in situations that would appear to deny all of that. And uh, it makes our great declarations of hope and joy and victory sound hollow because our feelings can't somehow accommodate themselves to what we are experiencing at a particular moment. And, and then we become disappointed with God. We become disappointed with the word. We become disappointed with the promises, with the, the value of being a believer, of living a good life, of doing good, and so on and so forth. So what, is, is it all worth it? I mean, why, if I'm going to be experiencing the same kinds of things that unbelievers, and look at them, they seem to be better sometimes than I do. How do we deal with those kinds of um, challenges and conflicts within ourselves? We all experience them them in one way or another. If we have lived long enough, I mean, to a certain degree, those doubts and those uh, negative thoughts offer themselves. How do we go on loving God and, and believing in his promises? And we have prayed and fasted for a miracle, for a solution, for a provision. We've done everything by the book, everything that the Bible says, and still the outcome that we feared comes upon us or what we are hoping desperately for doesn't happen. In those kinds of situations, people can become depressed. They can become angry at life, at God. We can stop dreaming those great dreams that we had, expecting great things from God. We sort of dial down a lot the expectations of the gospel and the victorious life. Or sometimes we experience paralyzing grief that, that prevents us from returning to a, a normal life. We just give up. And like a little bird that has been scared by a serpent, we lose our capacity to sing. and We become mute. How do we recover and go on with the business of life as David does, despite experiencing great grief and discouragement? David's experience has some lessons to offer us in this area. And I will add some of my own. But let me just do justice to the text itself. And we can look at some of the things that David does and then go on. From there, I'm going to try to really rush this and, and uh, not, not get bogged down into the intricacies of each of these things. You know, uh, but let me just again, quickly, before I do that, uh, put you in the right context of David, you know, what, he, what has happened to him. You know, if you, if you don't know this story, it's one of the greatest stories, most poignant stories, I think, in all Scripture. He has committed great sin, grievous sin. He has murdered a just man, Uriah, one of his best generals, a man of great integrity and uh, love for God and justice, an excellent, excellent warrior, very loyal to him. He has abused his royal authority and forced himself, probably on a defenseless uh, woman, Bathsheba, while the general is away at war. Um, he has undertaken then a massive political cover-up, and he has involved others in that web of intrigue to murder this man. And on top of that, you know, God it seems to be also incensed and deeply offended at him that David used the weapons of his own enemies. The enemy that, they, that Uriah was involved in fighting at that moment to execute his sinister plan of murdering Uriah. So he uses the devil almost in a sense, I mean, before God, to murder a man of God. So imagine that the irony of that. And this is why I think he says, you know, you have shown no regard. David has shown no regard for God's dignity and holiness. And God calls us, you have shown utter 
contempt. It's been an active kind of uh, disregard for God's holiness and justice and dignity and so on and so forth. He has done everything wrong that he could in the book. So at the moment that we come into the text, we encounter David. and He has been rebuked by God through Nathan and has been warned that he will be punished in very severe ways. I can imagine David. His self-esteem must have been demolished. Uh, the expectation of severe punishment that God has warned him about must have been just overwhelming. His remorse, his repentance must have been extraordinary. As we can see through Psalms 51, that, that psalm that he actually composed in the light of what he was going through. Read it if you get a chance sometime uh, in, in the light of all of this, no? And, and so now we are seeing David's reaction in the light of uh, the, the, the verdict that God has delivered. And we can learn some, some preliminary things from him, how to navigate situations that are similar, you know. So number one, I think he, David does all he can to change the outcome of his situation. And, you know, when we're, when we're going through our struggles, there are things that we can do ourselves. You know, there, there are certain actions and certain gestures that we can undertake to deal with our situation. We can't just leave it all up to God. Um, so, you know, he does certain things. He does his due diligence. He prays. He fasts. He acknowledges his sin. And, and he tries to get out of the consequences. And I think he's very right to do so. He tries to change his situation. He uses the weapons at his disposal. Jesus does the same thing, by the way. When he's be coming before the cross, he says, he, he prays. He spends the whole night praying, sweating drops of blood, agonizing. Lord, if it is your will, deliver me from this cup. And then he says, but you will be done, not mine. So, you know, there's, there's, there are things that we need to do. We, we, we cannot despair. We need to do our part. We need to pray for healing, all right? Don't ever stop praying for healing. Don't ever stop praying for a solution when you are in the midst of a struggle, all right? But yeah, as you can see, David is prepared, and he finally just bows before the will of God. So, the, you know, there are things that we can do, and I see him doing that, praying, fasting, weeping, you know, not bathing himself. He's really saying, Lord, have mercy. Don't execute your judgment. Secondly, I think another good thing that David does is he bows his head before the dictate of the Almighty. He doesn't rebel or become bitter. Please, never, never, um, how should I say, submit to the temptation to become bitter against God, to denunciate God, to question Him, to become angry at Him. You know, becoming angry at God, and I want to tell you that sometimes you will, and I will, and we all do. All right, but you must know that sooner or later, it's like your dad, you know, when you were little, he corrected you, but you knew that sooner or later, you had to, you, 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 in there, you knew that you had to go back and, you know, kiss his hand and, and uh, you know, go back and talk to him. But you were angry at that moment, and, and we need to find that balance. But I, I see people who have sometimes lost a lot of very valuable things, and they, we just become ingrained, ingrown. The anger becomes like inner directed, and it, it uh, poisons us. We must be careful that our anger doesn't become bitterness against God. Our sense of um, like bafflement. What are you doing, God? What, what is this happening? And so on and so forth. These are, these are legitimate things, but don't ever close yourself against God. And always reserve that space in your mind to know that sooner or later, you're going to have to come back to Daddy. And you're going to have to kiss his hand. And you will be blessed when you do that, Okay. So David sees that his son has died, and, you know, he, he actually, I, I think he must have forced himself to go into the temple and say, God, I worship you. He may have been, he may have been gritting his teeth. You are good. You are a just God. I bless you. I bow before your greatness. So he, you know, he doesn't become bitter. He bows his head before the will of the Almighty. Number three, I think he determines to go on with life. As I said before, in those actions that he takes, you know, he takes actions that bring him closer to his normal life. He takes a bath, he eats, he rejoins his family. Maybe he can't, uh, you know, come before the people and give a big uh, speech or, I don't know, lead a worship service. But he does those things that are at hand. And I imagine that when he, when he was eating, he was probably, you know, the food tasted, like, tasted to him like sand. But he knew he had to eat. He had to recover. 
You know, sometimes we do things that actually, instead of leading us to the path toward recovery, they debilitate us, they weaken us, they prevent us from actually joining the, line, the life of the living. Uh, or the, uh, the, the, yeah, the life of the living. And, um, you know, there are things that we can do that are at hand. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But he determines that life must go on. And uh, I, number four and last, regarding David himself and his actions as they are registered in the text, uh, he uses his conviction regarding eternal life to dilute his sense of loss, to make it more palatable, more sufferable. You know, he says, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I know I'll, I will be going to him. I think this idea of eternal life vis-a-vis the limited life of the here and now is a crucial thing for the believer. And I think when we, you know, when Christianity, modern Christianity has lost this cultivation of the afterlife, of eternal life, eternal hope, uh, I, I, we have lost one of the major weapons that we have at hand to go through the difficulties of life. The church must always remind itself of that everlasting hope of eternal life. We must learn to live in the eternal, even as we live very fully with our feet on the ground on earth. Our, feet, our head has to be in heaven as our feet walk firmly on earth. And, and this is what allowed the Apostle Paul, for example, in Philippians to, while being, you know, in the depths of a Roman jail, to worship God and to write one of the most uh, luminous letters that he wrote, ever wrote in the New Testament, the book of Philippians. The letter that is called the letter of uh, rejoicing, of joy. Because uh, Paul says, you know, he always brought his present sufferings to the eternal. And for example, he says, well, you know, I'm here surrounded by uh, soldiers in this jail. But, you know, I've had also opportunities to t- testify and witness about the gospel to the, the Roman guards that guard the emperor himself. And influential people have heard my testimony. God has given me the opportunity to testify before powerful people. So the gospel is being announced. And so for that, I rejoice. And he also says, you know, I know that whatever is awaiting me is so much more glorious than what I'm going through right now. So don't be, don't think it's a, you know, you're wimping out or um, kind of, uh, you know, thinking about pie in the sky. This is what the devil wants us to think. He wants to desacralize and debase this beautiful hope of eternal life and make us think that somehow that's a, you know, it's a, it's a way out, it's an escape. Uh, you know, it, it is not. It is a reality that scripture says, you know, awaits us and that when we think about that, when we lose our focus and our obsession with this world, what people think of us, how much money we accumulate, the, high, the size of the house that we have, how cool is our car, you know, we, we become so focused on the world, and so the world has a lot more power over us. But when we dilute that with eternity, all of a sudden, you know, the things that we go through, they become less important. And even the pain becomes more uh, manageable. So David does, I says, you know, I know that I will see him someday. Job does the same thing, by the way. I'll see my son. I may not see him now, but he's there waiting for me. And that was a great consolation to him. When we lose loved ones, man, we have to, we have to force ourselves to think about, hey, they, if they are believers, especially, they're in, a, they're in a much better place, and we will come to them, and um, we will join them. And so that's important. We could go on and on. But this, this conviction of eternal life uh, helps David to go through this process. Imagine, he didn't have the gospel. We have, we have all of these announcements of, of eternity to encourage us and to give us wisdom and understanding. 1 Corinthians 15, for example. But David didn't have all of that, and yet he knows that, uh, you know, there is a land of the living, and he will go and join his son there. So that's a, a, an important thing. Now, uh, this other idea of acting, I want to isolate it for a moment. This is number five for me. Even when we experience and process, even as we experience and process our grief, when we are in the middle of loss, we must act to whatever degree we have the capacity. I've known uh, people in my own experience as a pastor who have experienced great loss. And as I say, the tendency is just, you know, to draw down the blinds, don't get up from bed, don't take a bath, um, you know, get into a big pity party and uh, just to not take care of ourselves, not take care of the kids, on and on and on. And, uh, you know, 
You, you have to force yourself into action. I have found that action is a great prophetic act, actually. That sometimes, you know, we think, oh, I got to wait until I heal before I do. No, I think sometimes we have to do in order to heal. And doing and acting is one of the, the greatest things that, you know, as we move and act, you know, it, it's like a, a therapist uh, helping to heal a, a uh, tendon or a muscle. It hurts a bit when you're doing the therapeutic exercises, but you know what? After a while, it loosens the, the, the muscle or the tendon or whatever, and it enables you to be healed. But if you just uh, let the, the pain of the, of the contraction uh, or the tear prevent you from doing, you will be like that. It will get worse the rest of your life. You have to go through the pain. You have to go through the action in order for the healing to take place. And I think that's an important insight. When we're going through difficult times in our lives, we have to know that as I go by faith, doing whatever is at hand, however much I can do, all that David can do right now is just eat, take a bath, and put on some lotion and go to the house of the Lord. And even there, going to the house of the Lord, that's a whole work in progress. But you do what you can, you see? Do not stop doing. Do not stop acting. Know that action in the name of the Lord is a very powerful tool. And it's like that in everything. People wait until they have all the money that they need and paid all the bills and have the, you know, 10% of their salary in the savings account before they start giving or tithing. I have learned that you have to give even when you don't have. And then God oils that machine and then the blessing begins to flow in your life. Don't wait to have in order to give. Give in order to have. That's a great um, insight. So I think it's, it's the same thing with the action, you know. We must act. Action and, action and engagement in life oils the machine and warms it up. Action operates on our feelings and leads us out of the morass of despair. Just do it in the name of the Lord. Do it out of obedience. Just discipline yourself to act. The worst thing we can do is flee from everyone around us, just lower the blinds and immerse ourselves in pain and suffering, darken the lights and, uh, you know, just wallow in our pain. This is what, by the way, what Elijah did. And I may speak a little bit about Elijah at some point because that's, a, that's an interesting textured uh, text as well uh, when he was going through a great suffering. You know, it may mean just getting back up, getting back to work. Going to a family gathering, even if, even if you don't want to. Going back to church, praying, or engaging in conversation with a trusted friend or counselor. Or even watching a funny rerun of a movie that you made you laugh. Uh, you know, just, these are things that you will do therapeutically, out of obedience. Almost like watching yourself do it. Trusting that the effect will come as you go through the motions. And you got to trust. You know, sometimes when you're in pain and loss... You really have to exercise great objective um, capacity and lucidity. You have to believe that if I do this, it's going to work. And I just have to do it. Okay? As if the doctor were telling me, do it, and I'll do it. Take the pill because it will work. So action, de deliberate action. Number six, be patient with yourself and your feelings. Take the long-term view of things. Okay, so when you're, when you're in pain, be patient. When you're, when you're in the center or the beginning of a great moment of loss, you know, be patient with yourself. Just as the human body has been given the capacity to heal itself from physical wounds and traumas, so our emotional system and our spirit have been given extraordinary capacities to heal themselves. This is aside from God's gracious intervention and healing influence. You know, we, we have built-in resiliency in our very constitution as human beings. And if we just allow these God-given resources in our psyche, you know, they will act. And what happens when you, you, know, you have a fall or you have an accident, you, you hurt yourself or something? You know, the doctor tells you, you know, in six to eight weeks... You know, depending on the, you'll feel better. You sprain an ankle, whatever. You know, because the body has its own inner resources. And you know that in time, uh, nature will take its course and uh, you will feel better. But if you just fixate on the moment when you're feeling that great pain or the next day and you think, this is it, this is definitive, I'm not going to get out of it, then you're in trouble. But if you think, well, you know, it's going to take time. 
but I will feel better. And so I think it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a very down-to-earth um, thing that uh, you, you have to give yourself time. You have to trust what, what God has put into you um, and know that in time, things will become better. Time and, and our own natural God-given inner resources, our powerful ally, ally, excuse me, with time and patience, all wounds can be healed. All situations that seem absolutely insufferable, they become more bearable. But you have, to, you have to take time. You know, you have to wait. What you experience during the first uh, stages of your loss will in time, if you allow it, give way to emotional and spiritual healing and the new sense of normality. If you let it run its course, you will, it will get better. You know, so th- I think that helps us to wait upon the Lord. How many of the, so, we, we sing these songs many times. I will wait upon the Lord. So you, 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 you know, it, it, and we sing it, but we sing it mechanically. We don't know what we're saying. We have to wait upon the Lord. And we have to give him time to show himself faithful and for our own resources and for other things that we can't even contemplate to kick in and uh, take over. Don't assume that what you're experiencing in the first few days of your loss, the shock and, and the grief, that they're going to last forever in that same level of intensity. You must exercise patience and assume that the moment of healing will come. Just be patient. Remain hopeful. And wait until your system and your spirit do what they were designed to do. Here's a passage from Psalms 40. Again, David. It's one of my favorite uh, passages in Scripture. It says, I waited, and we we have talked about this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. Wait patiently. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet upon a rock. He gave me a firm place to stand. This is what it says. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. You know, uh, we, have to, we have to believe that God will put a new song in our mouth. And what is that new song? The new song is a new life. A new way of understanding our circumstances. Moments of relief, moments of joy, moments of celebration and laughter. Moments when that pain will be a thing of the past. And we will have found that, you know, there's so many other things to live for and to rejoice in. And life is good after all. And out of that suffering, many wonderful things came. And we were better prepared to live life powerfully as God wants us to. So, you know, he waits patiently. For that moment when the Lord will put a new narrative, a new understanding into his life. And that's a, that's a good thing to remember. Trust that God's mercy and compassion will manifest themselves in powerful, visible ways. Uh, as it happened in the case of David, God gave him a new, so, a new song and a new son. His name was Solomon. Beloved of the Lord. By the way, I've always said also that the, the consolation prices of God are much better than the originals. I, I found that over and over again. Sometimes God doesn't give us what we want desperately. But then he says, hey, by the way, here's this little thing for you. And it, it brings the light into our lives. And we sh- we've realized that, man, God knew exactly what I needed, much more than I, I thought in my own limited way. So trust in the Lord. He will give you a new song in his time. Here's another thing. Pray like crazy when you're in the middle of a great suffering. Pray like your whole life depends on it. And sometimes it does. Find Bible passages that, that will speak to your situation. You know, make a list of those passages. I have passages from when I was 20, what, 25, 27 years old in situations that I had experienced. The loss of my father, for example. One of the great blows of my life. And I wrote a whole bunch of uh, texts that I still have somewhere in red ink and yellow note paper. And I wrote the words of blessing and of promise of the Lord. And that brought great comfort to my life at that time. You know, there are, there are thematic passages in Scripture that will speak to your situation. Take them, make them emblematic, and, and recite them, pray them, you know, re- repeat them over and over again in, in the form of prayer. Uh, use these passages prophetically, as a weapon that you direct against the enemy. 
when, when we're processing trauma and loss, prayer has to become more than anything else a safety valve. It may not be the, the weapon that you need to change your situation, but it will be a weapon that will give you relief, like talking to a, a superb psychiatrist or a great counselor or your mom uh, listening to you and saying, hey, come on, son, it's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. God is going to, I remember the, the consolation that I received sometimes from my mom. She, she didn't have huge psychological insights. She didn't do it all right. But man, her, just her voice brought comfort to me. And I think it's like that, you know, in, uh, in speaking to God. It is a way of just releasing the anguish. Mm, taking all the, all the pressure and laying it before God. It's a great thing. It's an important thing that we need to do. So it's a way to express and process our grief. To massage our souls. To speak to the greatest psychiatrist and counselor in the universe. The Holy Spirit. Pray. Again, not to get solution necessarily, although you want that too, and you, do, you have to ask Him what you want. But also pray just to get it off your chest and to weep before the Lord. There is nothing more healing than weeping before the Lord. Just to bawl your eyes out, okay? Tell Him all your feelings. Go into a room where nobody will hear you and, and you know, scream your lungs out or or just to express your pain and know that God is not afraid of your pain. He's not offended by it. He will listen like only a father can, right? So it's an important prayer in that mode. It's very important. Number eight, confess the goodness of God. Confess the goodness of God. I spoke about confession earlier, last uh, two Sundays ago. You know, that positive confession, that that verbalizing of good things, even though sometimes we don't feel them in our heart. Confess the goodness of God even if you don't feel it or if you are angry at God. This is what David must have done when he went into, when he went into the temple. He was lacerated. He was wounded. But he just, you know, worshipped. This is what Job also did. In the middle of his anger, his pain, he says, look at the words of Job 19. And it, it, Job 19 is one of the most, uh, wow, it's unpleasant things to read. You see a man feeling that God has just taken his thumb and, you know, pushed it against his soul. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah is also chapter 3, I think, also the same thing. You know, you're like a, like a bear. You mauled me, says uh, Jeremiah. Because we feel that like God is just pitiless. So th this is what Job says. He has alienated my family from me. I think it bears reading because it's just such a powerful poetic um, imagery. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as on a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. Now, how's that for graphic imagery? Do you think the Bible is not real? I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. And my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Read the whole, the whole uh, chapter. But then, you know, out of that deep, deep darkness, something happens. Where did he get the resiliency to say, but I know that my Redeemer lives? I mean, where do you get that? How can you go from being reversed, going 50 miles an hour, to going 50 miles an hour in the opposite direction? I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. Again, there's another moment when you see that intimation of eternity. I will see God. Even if I die, I know that there will be a moment when I will see him. And I will be consoled. And, uh, you know, this, this is what we, we need to do. You see the struggle of a saint here. Feeling in a very real way, but at the same time also... You know, reaching out to redemption and, and hope. That's what we have to do when we're in those moments. These, are not, these moments are not strange to humanity. We all experience them, my dear brothers and sisters. Uh, and we need to be prepared for them. 
So number nine, let God know how you feel. You, you sense that in these texts. Let God know your feelings. I mean, he knows them, but express them to him. Talk to him honestly. Don't, don't become so spiritual that you end up repressing your true feelings and distorting the process of healing and recovery. God can take it. He's more understanding than you can ever imagine. You know, God can, people speak about the patience of Job, and so does James in his book. But you know, the book of Job is a very textured, dramatically rich document where you see the struggle, you see the gray, you see the feeling, you know, God is not as good as he says he is, and yet, but I know that he's good. And, and you, you see the, the back and forth of the soul, you know, the different moments in real time. That's what you experience and I experience. So know that you're in good company. And these texts have been placed there to help you and to help me when we go through these very real moments of life. So let God know how, he, how you feel. He's, he's not squeamish. Uh, they, David does this over and over again in the Psalms. We see him in, in, the, right, in the real time processing, processing his feelings of abandonment, hopelessness, fear, grief, resentment, hatred. And he's out exposing it all. He's living it. He's, you know, acknowledging it. There's something about that. Don't think that God is so spiritual or so delicate that if you tell him what you're feeling, he's going to get angry and say, okay, I don't want to have anything to do with you. You know, God loves, I think, when you are real to him and when you express your feelings because you cannot express your feelings to something that you don't think exists. I think the greatest honor we can do God is to be real with him because that means that we believe in him. We believe in his goodness. We believe in his fatherly love. We believe that he's capable of sensing what we feel and yet accepting us and receiving us. So in a sense, in a very, you know, elusive way, you are honoring God by talking about your pain and your feelings of abandonment and so on and so forth. And that will draw him nearer to you, I suspect, as well. Number 10, talk about your grief with people who, who will truly listen and who are capable of comforting you. Don't isolate yourself. Seek friendship and community. The friends of Job are infamous. These four guys, well-intentioned, but uh, they, they are secretly happy to see him where he is. He was such a successful man. He was, in, he was so highly regarded by God. And, uh, you know, they, I, think, I think that secretly they had envied him and were secretly happy to see him now. What, what do you call it? Eating some, uh, some grub? I don't know. There's a, there's a word in English about that, you know. Eating crow. Crow? Yeah, yeah. You know, they... They say, ah, there he is. Aren't we sometimes a little bit secretly happy to see a successful person or a saint fall? Come on. You know, and, and Job's friends, they, they did that. And, uh, you know, I, I, you, you need to reach people who will really listen to you. Talk to mature individuals who can empathize with you, who can give you a good word who are resilient themselves, who have experienced pain themselves, who know how to deal with the fallenness of uh, the human condition. You know, seek them out, a trusted one or two people, and express your feelings uh, to them. Seek company, good company. That's important. Don't do like Elijah. He just went the other way. He went to the desert, abandoned everybody. And loneliness can be a great enemy when you're going through pain. You need company, family, friends, so on. Number 11, and I'm drawing to a close here. Avoid, <clears throat> avoid uh, the why me syndrome. That's a temptation. And we have all experienced it one way or another. Why me, Lord? Elijah, again, he experienced that in deep, in deep ways. You know, it helps me to, to realize at this point in my life that stuff happens in life. And it's not that somehow God either obviously forgot you or obviously chose to pick on you or um, somehow chose you to be a, an expression of his injustice. Because sometimes we just kind of feel the, the, the temptation to put the light, the focus on us, on ourselves. You know, uh, suffering and loss are the stuff of uh, the human condition, this world. Jesus said, in the, in the world you will have affliction. You know, at this age in my life and um, my journey through living, I know that, you know, I cannot submit myself to the easy, superficial, bubbly, charismatic expressions of 
everything is, you know, great and victory and this and that. You know, we do a great injustice to people, not preparing them for the reality of life. Even the most powerful saints experience loss, impotence, prayers that are not answered, great moments of fallenness. And uh, we need to prepare ourselves, especially the young among us here today. Guys, prepare yourself for yourselves, for the reality of life. Uh, we, we live in a world of distorted mirrors. And uh, this is the, 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 the consequences of the fall. <clears throat> and the better, and the sooner we get used to that idea without becoming paranoid, I think the better we will journey through the reality of life. Prepare yourself. Because even the, the you know, we, uh, again, and I, I, I say this with great respect, by the way, um, the uh, Microsoft guy, what is his name? Bill? Bill Gates. Well, you know, I mean, and I say, as I say, with great respect, and I even hesitate to mention him because he's so much a part of us and of, our, of the, human, the life, but he's a public figure and he has been mentioned a lot, and many of you already know about it. You know, who would have thought a few years back, seeing him and Melinda, I think is her name, you know, traveling all over the world, the perfect couple, it would seem, perfectly joined together, united in one cause, and so on and so forth, all of a sudden, divorcing. And that doesn't bother me at all in terms of, you know, seeing him any less. He's just a human being, like any other. I neither rejoice nor I'm alarmed or somehow single him out for anything. It's just, that's just the nature of life, my brothers and sisters. You would think that, you know, you see this great uh, Angelina Jolie, beautiful, the perfect example of beauty. And yet, you know, she has her problems of health and has to, you know, have certain interventions in her life. I mean, on and on. Robin Williams, we were introduced into the, the agony of that life, making everyone laugh and yet living a very deep, deep, tragic life that leads him to suicide. This is life, brothers and sisters. The people that we think are perfect examples of uh, triumph and holiness, and you know, they all have their stuff. We all do. And this is part of life. And you, you need to get used to that. You know, even as we trust in the promises of God and we rejoice in seeing Him open the sea before us, we also have to know that, you know, this is a, this is a fallen world. Demons are real. Satan is real. Human fallenness is real. And, and uh, this is part of life. But somehow, in grace and with the, the, the aids of Scripture and of the spirit world, we can navigate all these things because Paul says, and yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. You know, but it's good to know that all these things, they do happen and that you're not exempt from it. You cannot escape this world unscathed, let me tell you. Can any one of you say right now that you don't have a little scar somewhere in a finger, in a uh, leg or in your cheek or... I mean, none of us. It is, it is the stuff of life. You take your car out from the dealer, and as soon as you step into the street, a little ding, a little stone happens to fly from another car, and it's no longer pristine. It wasn't even pristine when you put it on, when you took it out. And so this is life, my brothers and sisters, and it will happen to you, it will happen to me. And the better we get used to it, but then learn that in God we are more than overcomers that we can turn all of the gunk of uh, human existence into uh, moments of greatness and opportunities to become superhumanly Christ-like. So, um, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't uh, fall into the why me syndrome. Realize that everybody else is in a similar dilemma sooner or later. Bad things happen to good people. That's the way the world is. This is a fallen, sad place distorted by sin this is what the, the teachings of Solomon's uh, book of Ecclesiastes read it again because it's an important book number 12 it helps this is a, a bit uh, deeper and some maybe even scandalous it helps to realize that God himself has his own self-imposed limitations you know I've been thinking a lot over the years about the limitations of God and I know I'll get it from some theologian here, that God has his limits. But these are limits that he imposes upon himself by his own fidelity to his uh, word and his integrity. 
and his commitments and his irrevocable covenants that he makes and he can't break away from them. And so he has his limitations as well. He's all powerful. He could choose to break them, but then he would break his integrity and he won't do that. So that poses a big dilemma for us because sometimes we're, we're caught in God's own dilemma uh, when we suffer. You know, I, I tell people God is not the only actor in, in the human drama. Oh, why does God allow this? You know, he's not the only protagonist. There's Satan, who is an adversary, who is a psychopathic being who loves to destroy, kill, maim, steal, um, defame, uh, scar, distort. And then there's we ourselves with our own sinfulness and our own freedom. And the fact that God has delegated authority to humankind, and humankind has now delegated to the, to the devil and to the satanic forces that rule human existence. And God is caught in the middle here as a, a father of adults trying to get them to come back into the fold. But he can't turn them into robots. He's got to reason with them. He's got to use circumstances and, you know, godly influence of different sorts to try to, you know, hedge us in. And so he, this all-powerful, limitless God is forced to work with us, negotiate with us, kind of push us gently, sometimes a little more forcefully, but he is limited. And sometimes we are in the middle of that and we're experiencing certain consequences of that dynamic and we say, why does God allow this? Why does... No, remember, it's a very complex dynamic. Life is a web of relationships and we don't know them all, especially the one about past, present, and future, generational situations and relationships. All of these things, they intermingle God is there like a great chess player with a, a billion, billion pieces in his chessboard trying to make moves that will inure toward the betterment of humanity and the blessing of our own lives. And, and so we're caught in the middle of that. Please give God some space, even in the midst of your own pain and suffering. A lot of stuff there. And then there's a, one last thing. Know and choose to believe that there is always a solution to your pain and to your dilemma. There is always, my, my mantra in life is, there is always a solution. There's always a way out. There's always an unexpected door that can open if I am walking with God. God is an extraordinary provider of solutions that we cannot even imagine when we are going through difficult situations. Never lose hope. This is where prayer plays a significant role. Sometimes our situation seems hopeless and we, we cannot imagine how anything good can come out of a certain situation. But God is never out of solutions. If we persist in trusting in Him, He can always bring about something beautiful and surprising, even in the most seemingly hopeless situations. How many times were you in a, in a place where you thought, I mean, oh, this is locked. I can't go anywhere. This is checkmate. And God gives a big cosmic belly laugh and says no here's a here's a solution move this piece this way and all of a sudden boom there's the answer he has done it many times in our lives he can do it again he, he delights in showing us ways that we cannot understand and uh he he will he will he has a solution even if at the moment it doesn't occur to you trust he will open a door so Despite our discouragement and fear, we must look forward to that inevitable day when we don't give up. God will show himself to be fully deserving of our love and trust. I leave us with the words of the psalmist again. David, again, in his own moment of suffering and tragedy and aloneness, in one of his psalms, I think it's Psalm 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? You know, you have, we have to talk to ourselves sometimes. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. That yet is an intimation of hope in the future. I will yet. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I will yet find myself in the posture being able to praise Him. So soul, psyche, emotion, memory, 
take some time, relax, wait upon the Lord. Because the, the, the opportunity will arise, the, the solution will emerge. And then there's that, that final word in Psalm 71. David again. Because unless you have gone through great suffering, you cannot be able to give great consolation. And I think God must have made this man a receptacle of many experiences so that he could for 3,000 some years console humanity and bring a lot of exhausted travelers into his intimacy and, and his counsel. And that's another thing you learn sometimes, you know, what you go through. There's a lot of people watching and you will be able to give great blessing to others sometimes because of your struggles. God wants to make you an instrument of his wisdom, his blessing, his consolation. He says, your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? He's full of wonder at God's power. And then here's beautiful, beautiful text. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter. He knows that God is the origin of some of his suffering. And that somehow God sovereignly, paternally has made him go through these experiences. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. This is verse 20. Verse 20. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. Is he experiencing it now? I don't think so. He is looking forward by faith to the future when that will be his reality. You will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. Not only that, but also you will increase my honor. I may be in shame now, but you will increase my honor. And you will comfort me once more. May this be the confession of our hearts as we go through times of tribulation. May we learn to suffer graciously, gracefully, faithfully, intelligently, wisely. Because we have a God that even though he himself suffers with us and he himself sometimes twists his hands trying to find, you know, help, help us find a way out. And he's tried, trying to do it in a consistent way. You know, he suffers with us as well. Where is God when we suffer? He's right there next to us, with us, inside of us, suffering with us as well waiting for the moment of restoration please wait upon the Lord wait upon his goodness he will never fail you he will always prove himself faithful why don't you bow your head I will bow mine for a moment here all right let that let something of that of this uh, teaching sink into your soul right now if you have experienced great suffering great pain welcome to the club I'm here as your companion in the journey. God is here as well. He says, I am with you. I know who you are. I know that you are but dust. And this is why I have such compassion for you, the Lord says. This is why I know that, you know, even when you fall and you, you, you have your problems, even when you feel that you've come to the end of your rope, I'm there because I know that that's, what else can you do, my beloved? I am with you. And I, I long for the day when I can take you unto myself. When I can show you that it was all worth it, that all that you went through had meaning and purpose and, and look now where you are and rejoice and celebrate. Meanwhile, until we experience that time, God says, be patient. Heal yourself in me. Submerge yourself in my waters of healing, compassion, patience, love, and wait upon me. And rejoice in this sublime drama that I'm making you live and experience. You are a great tragic actor. Living the life of a moral giant. And you are honoring me by staying the course. Fighting the good fight. Not giving up on me. Confessing goodness. My goodness, even when the devil is asking you to do the opposite. So Father, come fill us with your hope. Fill us with your consolation. I pray that anybody who is watching this or hearing it or living it out here in the service, we cast ourselves into your sea, Father. 
where the waters of healing and life will penetrate every, through every pore and come into our inner being and wash us. Oh, Father, may we never lack a good song of worship for you. May we honor you always in the midst of our journey. We thank you because you're a good God. You're a faithful God. Your gospel is unrivaled. There is nowhere that we can run away except to your arms. There's no other oxygen except in you. So I pray that your blessing will be upon your people today. Lead us like a shepherd as you have until now. And we thank you, Father. We receive your healing. Receive the love of God. Feel the love of God. Feel the compassion of God. Feel the companionship of God right now in your life. He is with you. And if you saw his love, you would probably die. How beautiful, how strong, how intense it is. You're not, uncap you're not capable of processing God's love. It is so immeasurable. And that's the love that he has for you. Trust in him, okay? Trust in him through the journey. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. God bless you, people of God.